I want to start uh, this morning with a question for you. Uh, and I wonder if we're going around in a circle and answering this question out loud, how many honest answers I would get. But, here, but here's a question. Do you like who you are? Do you like who you are? And those of you who are nodding enthusiastically right now, we've got a humility class later. Um, do, do, do you like who you are? Maybe that's too pointed. Um, are there things in your life that you would like to change? Things in your life that you would like to change? And then my next question would be, do you really think change is possible? Do you really think it's possible for these things to change? Can Christianity, can this gospel message that we talk about every week, can it really change me? Uh, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Uh, it's a reasonable question to ask because those of you who are Christians know that, that change is slow and it's a process as we talked about last week. It's a reasonable question to ask if you're not a Christian because anytime you look into something, you want to know, well, how is this, is it really going to do anything for me? Um, if I'm going to do this diet you say is so great, I want to know that you've actually lost weight on it and not gained weight on it. Uh, if I'm going to start this exercise program, if I'm going to invest my money with you, I want to see that there's going to be some kind of return on my investment. So is, is this gospel that we talk about, can it really change me? Can it really change my life and the issues that I deal with? Uh, last week we started talking about this process of Christian growth. Uh, this process that we refer to as, as sanctification. <clears throat> and we talked about how that, how that works. And if you remember, we saw that sanctification has to be fueled by our devotion to Jesus Christ, by our love for Him as we see Him represented to us in the Gospel. That sanctification requires diligence and effort on our part, but that, that diligence and effort has to be enabled by God's grace. Now again, that sounds great. And you may have walked out of here last week going, okay, I understand how sanctification works now. But you still may have the question, well, will, will being involving myself in that, will that really bring about change? And what I hope to show you today with, with some concrete examples is that the answer to that question is yes. That change really is possible. So the text this morning verses 14 through 18, and actually let me read verses 12 and 13 again uh, just to remind us of where we were last week. So Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right now I'm picking up in the bulletin if you're following along. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, would you pray with me? God, this is your word, and uh, we pray that you would use it now. Use it in our hearts. Work by your spirit. Uh, sanctify us by the truth of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, <clears throat> all right. Verse 12 and 13. Paul has told us as believers that we need to obey God in all situations, whether somebody's keeping an eye on us or not. Uh, and then he tells us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, remember last week we used the illustration of, of shocking the pool. Now, when you shock a swimming pool, what you do again is you put this overabundance of chlorine into the water. You, you bring the chlorine level up above higher than, than anyone would want to get into the pool. Uh, in, in order, you're doing this in order to destroy all the contaminants that are in the pool. Um, now, when you do that, when you put the chlorine in, at that moment, in one sense, you've shocked the pool. But in another sense, you're still shocking the pool because that chlorine has to work its way into every nook and cranny of the pool. Uh, the chlorine's got to kill the bacteria that's over by the ladder and the algae that's by the steps and whatever little Johnny left in the pool when he was swimming. All right, it's got to, it's got to work its way around all over that pool, and it does that as the water circulated by the pump takes it to every part of the swimming pool. In a similar way, a believer in Jesus Christ is someone who has been saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ, but even now they are being saved because the implications of that salvation have to be worked out into every nook and cranny of your life as a believer. And we see one of those areas here more specifically in verses, or excuse me, in verse 14. Paul has, has said something very general, all right? Work out your salvation. Now he's taking us into a very specific place where we have to work out our salvation. And that place where we have to work in our salvation is our attitude. Uh, specifically, he addresses one that, that we all wrestle with all the time, if we're, if we're conscious of it, and that's one of... Uh, what he calls grumbling and disputing. Or the NIV says complaining and arguing. Uh, the message says do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. And then Paul says as you do this, as you live in this way, you will shine like stars in the midst of this uh, crooked and depraved generation. Now, why did he pick grumbling and disputing? Right, that's the thing that kind of like, well, now why did he name that out of all things? Why didn't he pick theft or sexual immorality or murder or idolatry? Why does he talk about grumbling and disputing here? Uh, it may be part of the reason is that that church is dealing with this problem of unity, and so that's <laughs> a very real issue to them. Uh, it, it may be that what he's getting at is, look, you have to obey God... You have to work out your salvation in all situations. All right? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. So whatever it is that God's calling you to do, in whatever way He's calling you to obey Him, do that without grumbling and complaining. And do that in whatever situation you find yourself in. It's not that there's some situations where you're kind of off the hook and it's okay to grumble and complain. He's saying do this in every situation that you find yourself in. Now, we tend to think, if I don't like the situation, then it's my right, as an American citizen, to complain about it, right? I'll have my own little private protest march in my head, all right, to, 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 to be upset about the situation. 
But, but that attitude, if you look through the Scriptures, is a much bigger deal to God than we realize. In fact, one of the things that brought God's judgment on the Israelites after they had left Egypt and they were on their way to the Promised Land was their continual grumbling and complaining. First uh, Corinthians, Paul writes, uh, chapter 10 we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so grumbling and complaining is a, is a big deal. Now, why is it such a big deal? Right? It wouldn't necessarily make my, my top ten of, of bad things to do. Why is it such a big deal? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said it's a big deal because of this. And he's talking about the the Israelites, and it applies to us as well, he said it showed, or it was deep ingratitude. Grumbling was deep ingratitude in the face of the saving grace and continuing activity of God. In other words, they had been rescued from 400 years in slavery. They were on their way to the promised land, and yet here they are moaning, and with some of them wanting to go back into slavery. And think about the position we're in as believers. We've been rescued from slavery to sin itself, we are on our way to the ultimate promised land. And yet often we ourselves are grumbling and complaining and even wanting to go back into where we were before. He goes on to write, A complaining or arguing spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and of lovelessness and pride toward others. It is a denial of grace. It is a working against salvation instead of working out salvation into every aspect of our lives. All right, the, when I'm grumbling and moaning, I'm working against salvation. I'm working against God's work in my life instead of working out what God is doing in my life. Uh, C.S. Lewis <coughs> talked about grumbling this way. He said, hell actually begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell, in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Grumbling is, is my heart pushing back against the rule of God in my life. Grumbling is the opposite of, of thankfulness for God's grace and God's provision. And as John Piper put it, grumbling is self-feeding because it obscures the light of God's graciousness and all-controlling providence. And so grumbling is a big deal in the Christian life. And Paul saying a part of working out your salvation is learning to do all things without grumbling or complaining. <clears throat> part of my life is to work out what God is working in, a thankful spirit as opposed to a disgruntled spirit. And so I, I have to learn to apply the gospel to my heart in such a way that I, that I believe these passages of Scripture, like Romans 8.32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When I feel like there's something that I lack that God is not giving me, I have to run back to the Scripture and say, well, he's given me Jesus, and if he's given me Jesus, certainly he's going to give me everything that I need. 
Or Matthew 6.26, Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If your Father takes care of the birds of the air, certainly He will also take care of you, His children. See, when I do that, when you and I do that, when we meditate on God's Word in this way, when we go back to a Romans 8 or to a, to a Matthew 6, we're doing what Paul tells us to do here in verse 16 where he tells us to hold fast to the Word of life. Holding fast to the Word of life. Right? So when we, when we go back to these promises of Scripture... We're holding fast to the word of life, to the written word of life, which connects us then to the living word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who enables me to work against grumbling in whatever situation I find myself. The Lord Jesus gives me sufficient resources not to grumble in whatever situation I find myself. When my kids are being difficult, when I want to be married and I'm not married, when I'm married and I don't want to be married, when my health is, is in bad shape, when I'm overwhelmed by all the chores that I face on a day-to-day basis, when my parents ask me to do something and all I really want to do is text and, and watch television, uh, in whatever situation we find ourselves, we have the resources in Christ, Paul is saying, to do all things without grumbling and, and complaining. So, and now everybody's convicted. Uh, let's go home. Yeah. Um, so, so, all right, so you're convicted. And, and so then let's go back to our original question. If that's me, if that's my spirit, can that really be changed? Can that really be changed? Um, can, can my heart be changed? And I, and I want you to see that Paul's answer here is yes. That as you work out what God is working in, as you hold fast to the word of life, you will be changed. Uh, here's who you can be. In all of your sin and dysfunction, uh, you can be changed into this type of person. And, and there's, there's three things I want to point out with, point out here. And the third one's kind of a lot of things together. But here's who you can become by God's grace. First of all, he's going to show us you can become a blameless and pure child of God. You can become someone who shines like the light. You can be someone who lives sacrificially, treasuring up the right things in your life and living with joy. Right? Grumbling, scared, disgruntled you. You can become this person as you work out what God is working into you. So we'll look at these quickly. Uh, verse 15 again. Well, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That is, as we do all things without grumbling and complaining, we really can become blameless and innocent children of God. Um, look, if, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then in some ways this verse describes who you are right now in God's eyes. 
Right? Because He sees you through Jesus, God sees you already as blameless and pure, this innocent child of God. But, you're a saint, but in reality, you're still here, you're still living in human flesh, you're still a sinner. And what Paul is emphasizing here is not so much, hey, remember who you are in Jesus. He's saying, look who you can become in real life. You can become the child of God that God always intended for you to be. You really can walk in holiness. You really don't have to continue to be this person that you don't like so much. You really can become human in the fullest sense of the word. And I think we need to understand that, that that what sin does when we disobey God's commandments, when we live in this rebellion against God, is that actually makes us less human. Um, it actually disintegrates us, which is the C.S. Lewis quote, grumbling just gets magnified over time and over eternity. All right? Sin actually disintegrates us. It, it destroys the relationships that we are in. It makes us less human. Um, the second half of season five of Breaking Bad is starting a night. And I'm very happy because it means I have new sermon illustrations. Um, but but one of the one of the helpful things about that show, and I'm not giving anything away here, one of the helpful things about that show is its realistic depiction of sin. That sin really does have consequences. And as you see the main characters in that show, the further they get into the darkness of, of the world they're in, the more their lives fall apart. And you see especially in, in Walt and Skyler and in their marriage. They really are becoming less human, and their marriage is just completely disintegrated. It's turned into one big power play. Uh, in, in fact, you especially see it in Walt. The more powerful he gets, the, the meth lord of all meth lords, the less of a human being he actually is, the less regard he has for human life. And that's the trajectory of sin. That's the trajectory of a grumble, that it just continues to be magnified over the course of your life if it's not arrested. And what Paul is saying, though, is that grace actually has the power to arrest that trend. That grace works in reverse of sin. The grace, instead of where sin is making you less and less human, grace can actually make you more and more human. More and more, he says, this blameless and innocent child of God that you were meant to be. Paul says you can become more human. And, and y'all, I, I really want you to, to take encouragement from that, that wherever you are, you don't have to stay stuck there. God has given you a way to become more fully human as you diligently work out what he is working in to your lives. Now, secondly, he says, no matter how messed up your life may be right now, you can actually become someone who shines like a light in the midst of a very dark place. Um, George Bush, the first George Bush was in the news this week, you may remember his thousand points of light thing. I always think of Dana Carvey, for those of you who remember that. Um, but the thousand points of light and how it is a way for people through service to be points of light in America. Now that phrase that he used, and I don't know if he realizes this, but it was actually used first by C.S. Lewis in a book where he wrote 
One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. And Paul's saying, that can be you. Um, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the movie Hotel Rwanda and how that hotel manager, uh, who had every right, or every not right, but every chance to get out of there and to save his own hide, instead, at great risk to his life, he sheltered uh, both Hutus and Tutsis in that hotel there in the midst of the capital city of Rwanda. He had over a thousand people staying there at one time. He was a point of light. He was a refuge to them in the midst of a very dark place. In the midst of genocide going on all around him, he was a point of light and shelter for those people. And Paul is saying to you is that you can be a point of light shining in a very dark place. But you don't have to do anything epic or dramatic to be that light shining in the dark place. All right? You don't have to open up your home to a thousand refugees to be a point of light. You simply have to be who God has called you to be in the place where He has called you to be it. You shine like a light when you're at work and when everybody's around the water cooler gossiping, you're the one who doesn't enter into that. You shine like a light when you refuse to enter into tearing down another coworker. You shine like a light when you maintain a confidence in God in the midst of very difficult life situations. You shine like a light when you simply raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. When you go about just the day-to-day stuff of being a mom and a dad or a son or a daughter or a a worker or whatever, with a Christ-like attitude and with a Christ-like demeanor, you shine as a light in a very dark place. And Paul says that happens again as we hold fast to the word of life, as we hold fast to the scriptures. Now, some translations actually translate this instead of hold fast, they translate it hold forth the word of life. And if you think about it, Without trying to get into the Greek, both of those are really true. Okay? Think about walking in the woods at night without a light, complete darkness, and you know what that's like. There's people around you. You can't see, they can't see. Now you've got a lantern, and you're walking, and it lights a path for you. Now will it light a path for you if you set it down and leave it and walk off? No, you know, maybe for a little bit, but eventually you're out of its range. And so you hold fast to that light, And it gives light to your path. But you're also holding it forth. As you hold it forth, the people around you are given light as well. And so I think both are equally true here. As you hold fast to the Word of God, and also as you hold it forth, you're bringing light to your life and to the life of the people around you as well. So you can be that person. You can be that person Uh, who shines like the light in the midst of a very dark place. You can be that person who's a blameless and pure child of God. And then finally, you can be a person who lives sacrificially, treasuring the right things and doing all that with joy. Look here, uh, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, we kind of read that and go, huh? All right, Paul is, is talking about here of being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from the Philippians' faith. And what he's talking about here are Old Testament sacrifices where wine was poured out as, as kind of a secondary offering to accompany the main offering. And the idea is that the Philippians' lives, as is devoted to Jesus Christ, is the main sacrifice. And if Paul has to give up his life as a believer in order to be that drink offering, that accompanying sacrifice, he's not just prepared to do it. He says it would actually bring him joy if he got to do that. Uh, what he doesn't want is to die without seeing any fruit in their lives. But if his death is just a small sacrifice poured out on top of their sacrificial lives, then he's, he's overjoyed with that. Now, instead of getting into all the nuances of that, I just want you to think about who's saying that. The Apostle Paul. And who is Paul. He was once a man named Saul. He was once a man who persecuted the church. He was once a man who hated Christianity. He was a man who stood by and gave approval as Christians were stoned to death. And now, he's more concerned with seeing spiritual fruit and growth in the lives of the people he's taught than he is with preserving his own life. He doesn't really care if he lives or dies so long as his church that he has devoted himself to grows in grace. He hated the church and now he loves the church. God did that in Saul's life. He made Saul a Paul. Don't you think he can do that in your life? Don't you think he can do that in your life? Don't you think he can take, make you someone who is not the same old self-centered you, but someone who delights and rejoices in the growth of the people around you? Someone who is not uh, obsessed with yourself. Someone who is not grumbling about every situation you find yourself in. But someone who is learning to rejoice and to rest in the providence of God in your life. And Paul is saying, yes, this absolutely can happen in your life by God's grace as you work out salvation each and every day. You really can change. Because Jesus died to save you, not just from the guilt of sin. He died to save you from the power of sin as well. That trajectory of, of, of the grumble that goes on and on until you're, you're no longer human, but just a grumble, really can be reversed in your life by the grace of the gospel. And I want you to take hope in that. Because, yes, we, we talk about week after week how, yes, we are still sinners. We remain sinners but there really is hope in the gospel that you can change and make progress in the faith as you work out what God's working in. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, I, I pray this would make us hopeful uh, that the God of the universe loves us and has given Jesus not just to secure heaven for us, but he's given Jesus for us to change us. And I pray that we would be changed. That we would be these blameless and innocent children of God 
shining as lights in a very dark place. That we would be those who take the gospel to others with the hope that they too can be changed and made not less human, but more fully human. God, help us to believe that. We pray that you would cause others to believe it as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.